Hello everyone, it's Andy here. We're on our end of season break. We'll be back on the 28th of November. However, here's a bonus episode that I recorded with True Crime B&B for Bethan's show. So please enjoy and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. everybody welcome back this is beth at true crime bnb today we are here for episode 80 and my special guest today is none other than andy from picture the scene podcast and some of you will remember if you were listening a year ago we had andy and rachel on episode 41 and we enjoyed that so much that andy has come back rachel was not able to make it today but we still anticipate good things out of andy so andy tell us what's going on hopefully yeah very happy to be here, by the way, Beth, and all of the True Crime B&B listeners. It's awesome to be back. I absolutely adore True Crime B&B, so it's a pleasure to be on. But what's going on? It's a pleasant Sunday afternoon, especially for the time of the year. Mm-hmm. Just plodding on with life. Rachel is pregnant at the moment, which is why we're trying to be kind to her and not make her record when she is with child. Is that the expression? I don't know what the expression is, but... Sometimes it is. Yes. <laughs> So yeah, so that's why she's not here. She would love to be here because I know she loves the podcast, but she is here in spirit, telling me off, making sure I don't misbehave. Well, hello, Rachel. We miss you. Tell my listeners, because I think a lot of them already know you, but there might be a few that have not found you yet. So tell them about your podcast and what your format is. Well, we call it Picture the Scene. So unsurprisingly, we try and picture the scene for our listeners. We try and put you at the scene of the crime and we try and be as descriptive as possible. We usually concentrate on up to the capture and less than the trial, but that depends on the case. I love to go on the unknown cases and the ones which have not really been heard or sometimes have never been heard by any other podcast and Rachel loves the more well-known cases so it's a good combination between the two of us and we do it because we love doing it and hopefully we tell a story how we'd like to hear a story so hopefully our listeners enjoy that as well. I think that you and I are kind of similar because I also like to dig up stories that I haven't heard on any other podcast because those people may not have made the headlines for six months but their story is still important and someone out there should remember them and So that's kind of similar between the two of us, I think. Yes, yeah, definitely. That's probably why I love your podcast. But yeah, yeah, I think we're definitely quite similar. So why don't you go ahead and get started since you're our bad guy today? I mean, you're a very nice person, don't get me wrong, but you can be the bad guy too. Okay. Because you're the bad guy every week on your own podcast. I guess I am, yeah. So... (laughs) So yeah, Beth, I'm the bad man today, and I hope this is bad enough for you all. And you know, Beth, it feels like such an odd thing to say, because any level of bad should be too much, let alone hoping I'm enough bad for anyone. But hopefully I'm enough bad for everyone today. Well, your point is understood. (laughs) And I want to start by introducing us to Dawn Walker. Now, Dawn was 52 years old, and she was a kind and loving soul. She was a loving sister, an aunt, a mother to three grown daughters, and a grandmother to at least one grandchild, a one-year-old grandson. She lived in a small village of Lycliffe, which only has a population of around 11,000 people. And it's located in the county of Yorkshire, which is in West Yorkshire, to be exact. And it's some three miles east of Halifax, and people tend to live there who want a quiet, peaceful life, while commuting to work in one of the largest cities of either Manchester, Leeds or Sheffield. So it's very much a commuter town. Dawn was known by all to be compassionate. She was known by all to be loving, caring, gentle. She was someone who got on with everyone, and not because she made a conscious effort to, but simply because of her nature and personality. It meant that you couldn't help but to like her if you met her. 
Now, there was numerous examples of when she'd done some good for a stranger, just because she could. Not like what you see on social media these days, Beth, where people do it for likes and follows. She just did things because she wanted to do good things for people. But I'm not going to list a load of examples off, but one good one is when she saw a disabled man who was a stranger to her. She'd never seen him before, and he didn't have enough money to pay for his grocery shopping. So she stepped in without a second thought. She said hello, she paid for his shopping, and then she went about the rest of her day with the friend that she was with, and she never actually mentioned it ever again. And she didn't even tell the man her name. She just said to him that she'd hope someone would do the same thing for her should the need ever arise. That's a really compassionate thing to do. Exactly. And it wasn't her even showing off her wealth because monetary-wise, she had very little. She worked part-time in a local school as a dinner lady. Do they have dinner ladies over there in the States, Beth? Oh, yeah. We call them the lunch lady, though. I guess we call dinner lunch, yeah. Adam Sandler wrote a song about the lunch lady. Oh, okay. That's good to know. Yeah, I don't know about (laughs) over there, but over here, while obviously ages can differ, when I was at school at least, it was usually older ladies who were always very kind and sweet, ones who loved kids. And while I don't often like to stereotype, Dawn stood at five foot exactly in height, and she was very slim build. And given the nature of her personality that I've just described, it's a stereotype that I don't mind giving Dawn because it's not a bad one. She was a stereotypical dinner lady or lunch lady. Right. And I think any British person who's over the age of 30 or 40, when they think of their school dinner ladies, they're probably smiling right now with fond memories of them. And that tells you what sort of person Dawn was. I'm just going to break in for a second here and say some of the lunch ladies in my schools were kind of mean. Uh, okay. And they wouldn't give you extra of anything, and they made you take stuff you didn't want. There's probably a difference between British and American dinner or lunch ladies, then. For what I can gather, Dawn usually saw in others what everyone saw in her, and that's kindness. Even if kindness was hard to find in some people, Dawn was known to have struggles with mental health, but she did her best to not let them impact her life more than they needed to. But I'd like to take you now to a day that should be pure happiness for Dawn. It was the 27th of October, it was a Wednesday in 2021, and it was Dawn's wedding day. She was getting married at a local registrar office in Brighouse to a Thomas Nutt. Now Thomas was 44 at the time of the wedding, and he'd been with Dawn for three years already. And how old was Dawn? Dawn was 52. Okay. Even though it should have been one of the happiest days of her life so far, Dawn was having some doubts. Should she really marry Thomas? She told her daughter, Kira, on her wedding day that she wasn't sure if she should go through with it. And then she messaged one of her close friends via text message asking her if she should just run. Oh, wow. That's a big red flag right there. Holy cow. It is. It is. But despite having her doubts, and sometimes, you know, it's quite common for one or both sides in a couple to have doubts on the wedding day because it is a big commitment after all. It is, but... <laughs> to say, should I run? That's that's kind of a, <laughs> that's a little more than I think most people think on their wedding day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it probably is. Yeah, and you'll see why coming up. But, okay. but yeah, despite her doubts, she decided to go ahead with her wedding after all. And I think what's testament to Dawn's personality, that even on her wedding day, she decided that she wanted to do things her own way. And she ignored the standard and customary white wedding dress. And she decided to wear a beautiful red wedding dress. So not only did she look different, and she must have definitely turned a few heads because of the colour, she also looked beautiful because she had a radiant smile matching her beautiful dress. Wow, good for her. 
So after they said their vows, and it was only said their vows in front of a, a small number of people, just family members, they headed off to a local pub for a small celebration with family and friends. Because, again, they didn't have much money, so they did what they could. Mm-hmm. So celebrations went well, and everyone was in good spirits. We were taxi-dropping the newlyweds, Thomas and Dawn, close to midnight at their home. Because of Dawn's unusual wedding dress, the taxi driver clearly remembered dropping them both off at their house. But sadly, Beth, we are a true crime podcast, and that taxi driver would be the last person who would see Dawn alive. Oh, no. They couldn't even get past the wedding day? Well, it depends on whose account you take, but no, he doesn't look like it. Oh, wow. All right. So what follows next is factual to the best of my ability. But when I move to opinion of either the police or the justice system or the perpetrator, I'll let you know just so you know what's coming from where. All right. So let's start with how Dawn died. It's widely accepted by both the police and the judge at the eventual trial that Dawn did die that night on her wedding night. What we do know is that Dawn and Thomas got into a fight that night and that Thomas attacked Dawn. We know that Thomas beat Dawn savagely around her head, causing multiple serious injuries as a result. And once he had done that, he used his hands to strangle her with such force that it fractured the thyroid cartilage in her neck. Wow. And this is somewhat corroborated by noises neighbours heard, because at first they heard arguing, then somewhere later they heard funny noises. Now these noises are now believed to be when Thomas was dragging Dawn's body down the stairs after he had killed her. Oh, that's so... that's horrifying. Yes, it gets worse, unfortunately. Once Dawn's body was down the stairs, Thomas shoved her body in a cupboard in the kitchen in the home that he shared with Dawn. So the following morning, a few unusual things happened, which was argued pointed towards Dawn already being dead that morning. Firstly, she was not answering text messages from her daughter something that she never failed to do. The pair had a very close, loving relationship, so she always responded straight away to her daughter. And secondly, neighbours saw Thomas hanging freshly washed clothes out very early in the morning, and we're talking around 5 or 6am. So this was unusual, because that was not a time of day that Thomas would even be awake normally, especially if he'd been drinking the night before, which he had been. Right. It was quite common that he drank, so he never woke up early. And secondly, what was more unusual was that he never did any housework at all. Cleaning, cooking, washing clothes, he never did anything. And he was not even shy about letting people know that it was not a man's job to do such a thing. And as such, no one knew him to do anything related to chores around the house. But here he was, hanging out freshly washed clothes, And this was before the sun had even risen yet, so it was still dark outside. And the day after his wedding. Yes, exactly. And the final unusual thing that happened, well, that morning at least, is that later on in the morning, neighbours would spot him hiding behind his car on the driveway of his and Dawn's house to try and avoid them, which was very unusual. So later that day, at around 5pm, CCTV and... We always talk about the stupidity of criminals, don't we? Yes, we do. This was his own CCTV that he'd installed on his house. And that CCTV would see him loading his car up ready for his honeymoon. And now this included putting objects on the front seat of his car. (laughs) So he didn't think that anyone's going to notice he forgot his bride? Yes, yeah, exactly. He would also be captured at an ATM alone, withdrawing money. 
and then just after 5pm, he would be seen driving off with his caravan in tow on his honeymoon. So before he left, he'd left a single text message that was sent from Dawn's phone to her daughter saying that she'd chat to her on her return and they'd go for lunch together on the 30th. Now this was believed, again, not factual, but it was believed to be done by Thomas through nothing could ever be proven exactly, but it was believed to be done to stop any suspicion that anything had happened to Dawn. So Thomas then drove to Skegness, which is a popular coastal town in the north of England, and that's where he was supposed to go on his honeymoon dawn with a caravan. But all he actually did was park in a lay-by. Do you have lay-bys over there? I think it's probably a different name, isn't it? Would that be a rest stop? No, it's not a rest stop. It's basically where you've got a road. Sometimes there's an extra little bit of concrete you can pull in just to take a rest, but there's no buildings there or anything. Our rest stops typically do have a building with a restroom and maybe some maps or something in there, but it's probably a similar thing. So yeah, all he did was spend two days in a lay-by before he returned home on the 30th. So if he was on his honeymoon, it was a very strange honeymoon. So we know for a fact, though, that Dawn was not in a car with him, either on his way home or when he arrived home. We know because CCTV caught him driving alone on the way home and his neighbour helped him reverse his caravan onto his driveway when he returned home and his neighbour would later testify that Thomas was alone in the car. So by this point now, because remember he sent a message to Dawn's daughter, Kira, saying, I'll meet you on the 30th and we'll go for lunch together. Okay. So by this point, Dawn's daughter was trying to contact her. But having received no response, she reached out to Thomas, quite obviously worried. And Thomas would tell her that the pair had argued on their way home from their honeymoon, with the subject of their argument being Dawn's mental health problems. Now, these problems, they were accepted by all, and they were never really revealed. Well, they were kind of in a few tabloid papers, but I don't really want to get into it, because it's just speculation. So, he told Kira that the pair had argued, and then she stormed out of the house. He said that he would agree to go looking for Dawn with her. So Kira, her daughter, went around to the home and she would note at a later stage that the house was spotless, as if Dawn had spent a lot of time making it immaculate. Now this was later believed to have been done on the daytime of the 28th before he went anywhere, the day after he killed Dawn, and to hide any evidence of any violence that had occurred. So when he told the daughter that she had stormed out of the house. Was he saying that she had stormed out of the house before the honeymoon or when they returned from the honeymoon or on the honeymoon? No, when they returned on the 30th. He said they returned on the 30th that morning. They'd argued and okay. she stormed out of the house. Okay. So he's still claiming that she went with him. And do you know what's especially horrible to think of though, Beth, is that while Kira was in the house, before she went out to search for her mom, she was there with her young son, the one-year-old, and she was in the same room as her mum's body in the kitchen. Oh, no. Yeah, her son's grandmother was hidden in the cupboard and she didn't know. As far as she was aware, she was going to go looking for her with Thomas, her new husband. Now, the thing is, though, when you told me he packed up the caravan and took off, I thought she was in the camper or, or that he had taken her body to leave her someplace. But she was actually still in the cabinet. Yes. That's just, oh, good grief. So Thomas then proceeded to go out and search for Dawn with Kira, and knowing full well that she was already dead. When they couldn't find her, which obviously they wouldn't find her, Kira was insistent on contacting the police to report her mother missing. But Thomas kept trying to convince her that it was not necessary. 
Kira was insistent, though, that the police needed to be involved. So Thomas told her that they should leave it one more night to see if Dawn came home, and if she didn't, he'd go to the police in the morning. And Kira, she reluctantly agreed, hopeful that her mum would come home that evening. Because as far as she knows, her mom's only been missing for one day. Yes, but that's still the same day, so yeah. Okay. So once Kira left, it's believed that Thomas put Dawn's body in a suitcase. And now I say believed because he could have done it at any point after he killed her. But it's believed that he did it at that point due to some medical evidence that they found. And to add insult to the disrespect that he obviously felt for Dawn, he had to desecrate her body. He had to break her bones so that she would fit into the suitcase. Now, his own CCTV, remember, his own CCTV would catch him later that evening dragging the suitcase that contains Dawn's body down his driveway. And if you really want to see it, a quick Google, you'll find it on many different websites. Now, he would take it less than five minutes away. He threw it over a fence into some bushes on a field that was used as a playground by kids because he had a green area along with some kids' climbing equipment and a swing and, and whatnot. What? He had... Yeah. He had all these opportunities to go and do something, and he throws it onto a field where little kids are going to find it. Yeah, five minutes from his house. What is wrong with this guy? It's, I believe it's just stupidity, if I'm being honest with you, Beth. Good grief. So when he returned home, because now it's the 30th of October, remember? So when he returned home, he spent the rest of the evening decorating his house with Halloween decorations. Because that's what you do when you've just dumped a body, isn't it? Well, he's feeling especially ghoulish. Yeah. So the next day, Dawn was reported missing to the police by Thomas. And he actually spent an hour with a policeman filling in a missing person report to help them try to find Dawn. Now, in the afternoon, so this is the 31st, the detectives in the local police station would receive a phone call from a solicitor saying that Thomas was on his way in to admit to the murder of Dawn. You're probably thinking, why? After all this trouble, and then he just goes to admit it. Yeah. So this was widely believed not to be done out of remorse, more out of fear that he knew her body would be found, and he realised that he would probably be the main suspect, so he wanted to get ahead of the situation. That's not getting ahead of the situation, you moron. No. Him, not you. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I, I don't know what to say. It's hard to try and imagine what people's thought processes are. He would tell the police where her body was, and he would say that he dumped it out of panic as he didn't know what to do. He said that the night before, on the 30th, he had gotten into an argument with Dawn about her mental health, and in defence, he'd struck out and killed her by accident. Now, not knowing what to do, he said that's why he then went to dump her body. So, quite obviously, I don't think it's going to take a genius to figure out, he would be arrested on suspicion of murder. So when the trial came around, he would admit to manslaughter, but not to murder. So it would go to trial. Now during the trial, he would stick to the same thing that he told the police. That he had not intended to kill her, and it was an accidental killing, during an argument defending himself. So it should be manslaughter, which is what he was admitting to. Now the prosecution know they would paint a totally different picture of Thomas. They would argue that rather than this being an accidental killing, it was rather the end product of years' worth of domestic abuse. They would provide witness testimony that Dawn lived in fear of Thomas, that she bowed to his every demand, doing whatever he wanted, without question or without hesitation. So now you can probably realise why she was asking her friends should she run on her wedding day. 
Well, you see other cases like this where the woman or the person who is being, and we both know that it's not always women who are abused, but a lot of the time the person who is abused sees the kind or the sweet and the loving side of their abuser sometimes. Yes. And they think, oh, if I can just do what they're asking me to do, if I can just acquiesce to these demands, then he'll be that nice person all the time. And that's just never the case. Yeah, sadly, I think you've got that spot on. Now, the prosecution, they would call as a witness Kimberly Alcock to the stand. Now, Kimberly was an ex-partner of Thomas's. Kimberly had been with Thomas for 10 years, and she was mother to three of his children. She would go on to say that the violence began not long after Thomas had served 16 weeks in jail for a road rage incident, that she had given birth to their son a few days earlier before the first lot of violence, and they were actually arguing about what to call their son. So she would say this, and this is a quote, Thomas went into a rage and he started punching me to the head and face again and again. I thought he was going to kill me. Now, does that sound familiar to Dawn's injuries, Beth, would you say? It sounds similar to Dawn's injuries. Yes. So Kimberly went on to say that he took her phone off her so she could not call the police. And then he locked her up in the house so she could not get out. She would then say, he was violent and controlling. He gave me no money and I felt like I was in prison. He was horrible. I couldn't leave the house. She would then go on to say that how he kept asking her to marry him, but she kept refusing to, quite understandably. And that the violence didn't stop, but she was too afraid to leave him. He even attacked her by throwing bleach over her while she was heavily pregnant with their second child. That's just... But she doesn't want to leave because she knows that that's the most dangerous thing that she can do. Yes. She needs to leave to be safe, but leaving will not be safe. Yes, definitely. So he ended up having two daughters and a son with her, Kimberly. And she would say that he was never interested in his daughters, that he hated women, but that he was obsessed with his son. She would describe the final attack that made her get help. She would say this. I went to bed early with a headache. I was woken up by him throwing tablets at me. He dragged me out of the bed and he started to strangle me. I couldn't breathe. He was pressing hard on my windpipe. I managed to struggle free and run for my life. So again, does this sound familiar to you, Beth? Oh my gosh. When she said he was throwing tablets Is that pills? Yes, because she went to bed with a headache. So he woke up by throwing headache tablets at headache pills, sorry. Okay, sorry. Yeah, sorry, we call them tablets over here. Well, we do too, but I just wasn't sure because there are other things also that are tablets. Yeah, they are, yeah. (laughs) I assume, I mean, I don't know why, but I assume he wasn't happy that she went to bed early. Well, no, because he wants to be in charge of that. Yes, of course. So when she said, oh, she ran for her life, She meant away from him in the house. She couldn't actually get out of the house because he'd locked all the doors. She said that he then stripped her and he bagged up all her clothes so that it was evidence. But luckily, a neighbour heard the screaming and called the police. Now, I personally think he was clever enough to know I've got to get rid of this evidence. I think he was going to kill her that night. He probably was. But a neighbour heard her screaming and called the police. So he would be arrested for that. And he would be given a non-molestation order, which basically means, I don't know if it's the same over in the States, but in the UK it basically means it's an order to try and keep people away from someone who they've been abusive towards. Right. Here we call it a protection order or similar things. And I'm surprised he never even got sent to jail for this, but he didn't. But he got given a non-molestation order 
which he broke almost immediately. But when he broke that, he would subsequently be sent to jail for breaking that. And now I believe, from what I can gather, he spent 17 weeks in jail, but he didn't spend a long time in jail, in prison. Now, he did, luckily for Kimberly, move away from Kimberly then. But there was also a history of violence with Dawn. And this was actually documented by the police. On one occasion in 1999, they were called to reports of violence between them. Not long after the relationship began, but no action was taken. Now, to me, if you've got someone who they know has a history of domestic violence against a previous partner, and they've been called out to violence between him and his new partner, why would there be no action taken? It's really strange. I don't know if it's the same there, but if the recipient of the violence doesn't press charges, then a lot of the times nothing is going to come of it. Yeah, that is true. I mean, sometimes they do still press charges, but you're right, probably was it, because she probably didn't want to, but... Well, he probably told her he would never do that again. Oh, I've learned my lesson. I'm so sorry, honey. I will never do this again. I guess, yeah. It was the start of the relationship, so he was probably still trying to be nice at that point, trying to fool her. But in September of 2020... So the year before Dawn was killed, the police would be called again. This time, a witness heard Thomas say to Dawn, I can snap your neck at any point. And what did he end up doing? For those listening, I was actually pointing at my neck for some strange reason then, because I know you can see me doing that. But also, as well as a witness hearing him say that, she had visible cuts to her face, and she also had a black eye. So in this instance they could have carried on with the charges because they had physical evidence he'd been abusive towards her. And he was arrested and he was demanded to go to jail while he was waiting trial. But Dawn would eventually drop the charges, so they decided not to go ahead and he would move back in with her as soon as he got released from prison. The prosecution argued that this showed a pattern that Thomas inflicted domestic abuse on his partners that the way in which Dawn died was his usual manner in which he would attack, and the fact that Dawn dropped the charges against him the previous year, along with the witness testimony that she answered his every beck and call, showed that she was in fear of him and that she was a victim of abuse. They also used the messages she sent on the wedding day to show that she was scared of him, but ultimately leaving him made her more afraid. So Thomas, he would be found guilty of murder. You'd be happy to hear. And in the UK, that means an automatic life sentence with a minimum term set upon deciding mitigating and aggravating points. So the judge said that he was obliged to take into account that Thomas was willing to plead guilty to manslaughter at the earliest opportunity, but that the aggravating matters far outweighed the mitigating ones. Absolutely. The judge actually, this is quite unusual, because usually judges stick to facts. Well, this is a fact, but... The judge actually called Thomas a bully and a liar. He referred to the victim impact statements from Dawn's family that were read out that Thomas had changed their lives forever. He referred to his multiple previous convictions, several for violence and also several for robbery and dishonesty, and also the fact that he had Dawn's daughter in the house while her mum's body was there and that he desecrated Dawn's body to fit it into the suitcase And then he also said he had to take it as an aggravating point that he dumped it where children could have found a body as well. I agree with all of that. He dismissed Thomas's claim that he had killed her on the 30th, citing evidence he had gone on the honeymoon alone and the fact that he'd been washing his clothes. Now, he would say that this showed that Thomas showed no remorse whatsoever. If he would have been remorseful, he would have been honest about when he killed her. 
So he said that he did believe that Thomas had not meant to kill Dawn, and why he killed her, no one will ever really know, other than Thomas, but he said that he did believe that he had meant to initially cause her serious harm. And I don't know if you know this, but that's all that's needed for murder in the UK. You don't have to intend to kill someone, you just have to intend to cause them serious harm. Well, that's good. That's a good stipulation, because if a person didn't intend to kill them and they die, oh, well, oh, you didn't mean to? Oh, well, I guess it's okay then. So I'm glad you have that stipulation that even if you weren't trying to kill, you were trying to hurt and death sometimes results from serious injury. Yeah, well, yeah, that is a good thing. So he would sentence Thomas to 21 years in prison, which I know by American standards doesn't sound a lot. But that's a pretty decent sentence for the UK. And we have to remember over here that 21 years doesn't mean he'll be released after 21 years. He has to convince a pro board, including medical experts and psychologists, that he's no danger to society. So he could stay in prison for life. And now, if you're listening to a picture of the scene, and I know you are, Beth, you all know that I usually like to have a little extra after the conviction. Okay. And usually it's an appeal. Or it's something that's happened, maybe another crime. So I thought it'd be remiss of me not to have one now. Of course. So if you don't mind, we'll have a little extra. All right. And so it turns out that Thomas was a typical bully once he got inside of prison too, Beth. Well, good, because that means he's probably going to get his pants beat off a few times. Yeah. And I didn't mean that in a good way. I meant that in a bad way. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're exactly right, Beth, because this time, because he'd been in prison several times before, but this time... He was in a Category A prison, which is a more secure type of prison because he was in for murder as opposed to a BOFC that he'd been in before. Now, reports would say that he had tried to be the big I am in prison, attempting to take charge and bully other inmates. But the problem is, though, if you're a bully who's used to picking on and committing violence against people that are afraid of you and weakening you, you might not realise that it won't work on everyone. And especially it won't work on those bad and evil people who are Category A prisoners. So it was reported in local newspapers that he had been severely beaten up on more than one occasion in prison and that he now lived in fear of his life inside of prison. Boo-hoo! Exactly right, yes. Such a sad outcome, isn't it? (laughs) Now, an anonymous quote from someone who worked at the prison he was at would confirm this and it would also confirm the reason behind it. So right now, he basically is every day in fear because he tries to be the bully in prison and he realized that he's just a weak man who preys on weak people he is now the prey so while i don't condone violence it doesn't upset me too much that he bit off more than he could chew inside of prison the theme that you just brought up of predators like him being cowards who prey on people they think are weaker than them that will come into my story too so keep that in your mind as we continue forward but I'm not sorry that he had a rough time in prison because he was an evil, horrible human. And do you know the extra icing on the cake? When they go up for parole, they take into account all counts of violence. It doesn't matter if you were the victim or the perpetrator because the theory is you'd have had to in some way caused or been an active part into why you had violence against you. So even though he's being beat up, when he goes to pro in 21 years, if he's still alive, these will be counted against him as proof that he's not suitable to be released into society. I can kind of understand the theory behind that, but I don't think that's necessarily true. It's like saying the woman in his relationship had somehow brought on the violence that happened to her, and that's not true. So 
in prison, I can see where if you're just in there trying to mind your own business and someone's picking at you and you don't go with it, you know what I mean? I do, but it doesn't actually tend to happen that often in prison. In Category A prisons, how it usually works is, because they're in there for such a long time, right, these are lifers or people doing significantly long sentences. Mm-hmm. Violence only tends to happen if it's for a reason. You don't tend to get the what you see in films where it's someone bullying another one because they don't want to lose their privileges because they get access to TVs, they get phones in the room now, they get video game systems and all that stuff. They don't want to lose all that. They know they have the parole to account for. So I see what you're saying, and I don't disagree with you, but okay, they usually understand there's a reason behind it. But I know I see what you're saying, but yeah. So that is me, Beth. What do you think of that one? Is that okay for you? Well, you know what? I'm glad that he was imprisoned. I'm glad that prison has made his life a little less cushy than it could have otherwise been. Because I don't mind that he's being punished for what he did. I just wish that when Dawn worried about whether she should marry him or whether she should run, I wish she had run. But then he would have come after her and killed her for running. So the problem is once you start getting involved with people like this, you're really never going to be rid of them until they decide to be rid of you. And that's the whole thing. You just can't get rid of them. Yeah, I think you're right there. So that was a very, I don't know, I don't want to say interesting story, but that was an interesting case. And I'm glad that there was some justice at the end. He probably was angry with her the night they got married because she wore a red wedding dress. He probably thought, who do you think you are wearing a red wedding dress? Well, I didn't include it in the story, but the speculation is that it's widely believed that he was not happy that she wanted a honeymoon longer than two nights because he wanted to get back for Halloween. It's not obviously ever been proven, but some of it, her friends and family have said that that is probably the reason why they argued. She wanted to be on honeymoon for more than two nights and he wanted to basically get home so we could have a Halloween party. I appreciate that story and it's so telling because it's such a common story. Maybe not to be murdered on their wedding night, but it's so common that people get into these relationships and then something terrible happens to them. And a lot of the time there's no justice. So I'm glad there was justice. Yeah, the reason I picked it was simply because it struck me because I feel that he should have had some sort of punishment after he abused his first partner, Kimberly. Absolutely, yeah. And then that wouldn't have happened. If there had been some sort of system in place where his new partner, Dawn, when he first got with her, was notified of his past, she would have probably ruined my mile and it would never have happened. So that's why it was interesting to me that he did what, unfortunately, you could probably predict that he would do simply because there's no real system in place to protect people. And if you ask me, if you're a person who abuses somebody, whatever the age, then you deserve to have your future partners or people that you're close to be notified about this. Yeah, no, I agree. I don't know how, how you would implement that, but I think that that's the truth. I think now we've got the social networks are out there talking about these people that have done these terrible things. But here, everybody is so sue happy that unless they've got a conviction, it's really hard to put the information out there without getting yourself in some sort of trouble yourself. Yeah, I guess you But he got a conviction for breaking his non-molestation order. In the UK, if you're, I know it's different in the States, if you're a sex offender, it's not like in the States where you can look up people with sex offenders, it's private. But if you get into a relationship, you're forced to disclose that to the other person. 
Oh. And and also people who can go to the police, and as long as they can prove they're in a relationship with someone, they can ask the police to check whether that person is a sex offender. Oh, wow. So if that's in place for sex offenders, and also in the UK they have a thing called VISA, which is a violent, I can't remember what I stand for, sex offenders register. So what people don't realise over in the UK, because people say the sex offenders register, and they just think it's for sex offenders. actually. People who have committed acts of violence can be and are put on that as well. Basically, so they can be monitored by MAPA. MAPA means multi-agency public protection. I can't remember the last A stands for, but it's basically a body with from people from different departments. They monitor sex offenders and truly violent offenders. It's different from a life license for murderers. And so that exists already. But they don't have the same precautions they do for sex offenders. So they don't make a violent offender disclose that and they should do it could be done yeah they should they should there's got to be another acronym out there that you can throw at me right now (laughs) sorry (laughs) please i hope there's not a quiz (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry about that i'm teasing you great story that was uh, really satisfying that he was convicted and he'll be in prison for a long time right yeah assuming he lives that long sounds like he's not doing a good job making friends All right, so are you ready for me to jump into my story? I'm looking forward to it. That has a few through lines between your story and mine. So let me get into this. I do not have a lot of background information about this woman because she's still alive and people who are still alive generally don't want to put all their life information out there. So we're just going to talk today about Pi Bateman. Pi Bateman was not at all athletic as a child or an adolescent. She was born in the late 1940s and actively avoided sports because she thought she was too small and weak. At a diminutive five foot two tall, she had never even considered participating in either solo athletic activities or in team sports. She was studious, though, and in junior high school, she joined the band, which prevented her from participating in any athletics. After high school, Pi studied Russian literature at the University of Texas in Austin. While Pi was studying at UT Austin in the mid-1960s, two girls disappeared without a trace, and this was the first time she became cognizant that women aren't always safe in the world. She wasn't exactly frightened, but she began to take note of the dangers that can exist in the world for vulnerable women. After graduation from the University of Texas, she later studied at the University of Washington, where she got her MS in sports journalism. Pi was becoming very involved with the women's liberation movement and advocating for women's equality, women's self-respect, women's bodily autonomy. Around 1968, Pi began taking karate lessons, not necessarily for self-defense because at that time she didn't consciously feel powerless or weak. She wasn't equating the karate lessons with the sense of danger in the world. It was just becoming really popular in the U.S. and she just wanted to try it. After she began to actually feel powerful because of her training, she realized she had never felt powerful before. And she liked feeling powerful. She threw herself into karate, earning her black belt in the Shito Ryu method, and eventually started to take other women under her wing. She said that women in the male-taught classes were not taken seriously as students, and they were definitely not taken seriously as fighters. But out in the world... Sexual assaults and murders of women were beginning to be on the rise, the incidence of rape having increased by 420% in the previous 10 years. Wow. And that had to be jarring to realize that at that time. 
This put many women in a place of fear and lack of confidence in their ability to protect themselves. The conventional wisdom in the 1970s was that if a woman were to be assaulted, she should just comply because making the attacker angry might only cause him to hurt her more. In fact, a pamphlet issued by the Seattle Police Force and Safeco Insurance suggested that women would do best by sweet-talking and using their feminine wiles to gain the favor of their attackers. My word, that seems ridiculous. Like this, they're coming together, these people in the forces saying, what advice can we give women? And then they end up, this is a solution? Just go with it. That was their answer. Yeah. Well, Pai did not agree with this assessment. She became incensed when during the 1970 Seattle Sky River Music Festival, reports continued to flow out that sexual assaults were rampant there and no one was being held accountable. Women were being subjected to humiliations and indignities that they seemed to have no control over or recourse for. So in 1971, 24-year-old Pai started her own karate studio, or a dojo, which she called the Feminist Karate Union. It was limited only to women, because women in mixed-gender environments are often overlooked and undertaught. Pai wanted women to know they were the focus and to be empowered to speak up, to not feel self-conscious, and to know that they were not only welcome but vital to the dojo. She wanted to saturate them with a different mindset. They did not have to just take and accept whatever some predatory monster decided to do. Many serial killers, but in particular Ted Bundy, had been abducting and murdering women from 1974 until Bundy was finally captured for good in 1978. And this horrible series of crimes from all of these different killers and terrible rapists really put shock and fear into many women, particularly into young women who were often his victims and their victims. As Feminist Karate Union grew, Pai sought out women who had this fear and wanted to help them take ownership of their own lives, their bodies, and their sense of empowerment. Pai intuited, which was later backed up by research, that a man attacking a woman he doesn't know is likely to run off if the woman makes noise, screams, or fights back. It's a similar concept to the one that Kelly Heron from my episode 55 said, you have to make the attacker recognize that hurting you or raping you will be more trouble than they really want to deal with. Pi knew that a lot of women could save themselves if they had some tools to use against a would-be rapist or murderer. She also understood that not every attack could be thwarted, but for every woman saved from that fate, it was worth the effort to teach those skills to anyone who wanted to learn. She also had mixed feelings about a woman arming herself. While she conceded that some situations could be thwarted by a woman who carried a weapon, Pai also thought a woman could be better served by teaching her skills that could not be used against her. Not only that, but a woman who builds up her strength, confidence, and self-defense skill set will benefit in every aspect of her life by not living in fear. In 1978, Pai, now a strong 28-year-old, wrote a book called Fear into Anger, a Manual of Self-Defense for Women and she continued teaching at the FKU. She offered programs in karate, but also in self-defense and rape prevention. Not all of the programs focused on pure karate skills, as one would use in competition. In her book, she delineated how a woman's attitude is paramount, not only to escaping a dangerous situation, but in fact can help her avoid the dangerous situation in the first place. But for a woman who is unable to avoid being accosted, She makes the point that most sexual assailants are cowards. These are usually men who want to be violent, 
but violence against another man would be too challenging. So they attempt to commit crimes against people they assume will be weaker, meeker, and more vulnerable. Now, Beth, hope you don't mind me saying this, but this would be the ultimate happy story if we just ended it here. Hi, sounds amazing. <laughs> she's wrote a book, she's helping women empower herself. and She is amazing. Let's say, and everyone is happily ever after. Done. End of story. Nice talking to you, Andy. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Pye referred to a study by Pauline Bate, a psychologist in Chicago, who made the point that women who were fearful were more often unable to avoid being sexually assaulted because first, they appear less assertive, and second, they would not try to upset or anger the attacker. This went against the early 1970s thought that when confronted, you should just go along and comply. But the study showed that women who turned that fear into anger were more likely to escape the situation. It was not a common opinion that women even had the right to defend themselves, let alone the responsibility. Many women of the time would hesitate to injure or knock out an attacker, even if they were trying to rape or kill her. Pye was a proponent of the methodology espoused by Pauline and Paula Short, who co-wrote a self-defense manual called FIGHT BACK, in all caps, and which went counter to most of the conventional thinking of the time. So Pye set out to teach women how to turn that fear of rape, of injury, of death, of mutilation into anger. How dare you try doing this to me? But the only way to create an immediate anger response rather than just a fear response is to practice the responses. The only way to have the muscle memory of a physical response without having to sit and think it through is to practice and practice and practice. Running through drills for all the typical scenarios would make it second nature to execute an anger response rather than to dissolve into a fear and panic response. So much so that even a different unpracticed scenario would put the women's skills at the forefront and not leave her in that panic. Pai knew that a woman being attacked couldn't use clean karate methods to save herself because fighting by the rules would put the woman at a disadvantage. If a man has attacked a woman, the woman not only can fight dirty, she must fight dirty to save herself. She taught about the vulnerable spots to hit an attacker, the eyes, the groin, anywhere soft on the body. She taught how to exploit those spots to advantage and to have the self-confidence to follow through. Pai founded another organization, Alternatives to Fear, in 1975, and this produced self-defense seminars based on the concepts that she had laid out in her book. Pai was making a difference in how women viewed the idea of being attacked or assaulted. The women she taught learned how to be strong and carry themselves with a confidence that would dissuade a lot of these cowardly attackers from even approaching an assertive woman in the first place. But they also learned how to vocally and physically respond if they were unable to avoid the predatory attackers. Pai also used her writing skills to co-write a pamphlet with Gail Stringer called Where Do I Start? A Parent's Guide for Talking to Teens About Acquaintance Rape, which focuses not only on what girls should do to avoid being raped, which is still the major concept that you see regarding that even today, but more on teaching boys how to foster a healthy attitude towards sex and to develop independent thought, making them less impressionable regarding peer pressure to score with or without consent. The goal was to get boys to take responsibility for their own bodies and their own actions, and this would be to the benefit of all people. Well, by 1984, Pi, now at the age of 37, had been running the Feminist Karate Union for 13 years. Hundreds of women had learned under her tutelage, gaining strength, gaining skills, gaining confidence. Some of her former students had gone on to teach at the dojo themselves, bringing full circle the village mindset that looking out for 
and supporting other women was every woman's responsibility, because leaving their safety to men hadn't worked and just wasn't realistic. On a beautiful spring day on May 25, 1984, Pi had just had a normal day running some errands, then stopped by the dojo to let some students in for practice. Then she headed back to her house. She had some plans to attend a folk music festival, and her friend was going to pick her up soon. She just needed to run inside to clean up a little and maybe change her clothes. As she stepped up onto her deck to go into the house, a man who had apparently been hiding behind a knee wall next to the deck was instantly behind her. He swung his arm out and around her neck and then used the other hand to quickly slash at her eyelids, a tactic he was using to effectively blind her with her own blood. Then the knife was down at her throat, and Pi knew this could be the end. Knowing that her choice was to injure her hand or let him have access to cut her throat, she managed to slide her fingers and hand up between the blade and her throat, all the while consciously aware that the blade was slicing into her skin. She wanted to tuck and roll out of his grasp, but he was too large. His grip on her was too strong. Remember, she's five foot two. She's tiny. Pi innately instituted three strategies make enough noise to scare him away or to attract help, to physically get away from him, or to just keep fighting until her friend arrived to pick her up for the folk music festival. She yelled, hoping to get the attention of neighbors, but no one heard her shouts. She managed to kick backwards to hit him in the groin, and he collapsed but forward, knocking her down with him. Pi continued fighting him, knowing that thing that she had told her students for years. Most men who attack women they don't know will run away if you scream or fight. But he wasn't running away. In Pi's words later, she said, My personal experience stands counter to the research. He was at the upper end of the violent scale. In other words, this attacker was intent on killing her, and her fighting him didn't immediately phase him. But she still had work to do. She wondered briefly if all the work she had done to train women to protect themselves might still not be enough but she had spent over a decade strengthening her mind and her body, and Pi was not giving up. The man grabbed her back up off the ground after they had fallen down together and forced her into the back door of her home. She knew that being in an enclosed place meant it was unlikely anyone would hear her at all. He raised the knife back up to her throat again, intending to cut her throat, and Pi, knowing the consequences of not acting, were many times worse than whatever injury she might receive put up her left hand again and grabbed the knife blade. Her life depended on it. She felt it cutting into her, but she used the strength and discipline she had developed through her karate practice, along with her sheer will to live, to grab it away from him and throw it down to the floor. The man reached down and retrieved the blade without taking his hold off of her, and when he came back up, he sliced her face. Pi has no memory of any pain from that. She continued fighting him, kicking him, and punching every time she was able to get a hand or a foot out of his control. She kicked him in the groin again, buying herself more time. Her consciousness was beginning to fade. She had been fighting her attacker, in her foggy estimate, for between 15 and 30 minutes. She really wasn't sure. And every second of that was a physical and mental battle. She was determined he would not win, even though she was starting to gray out and get fuzzy with her consciousness. She didn't at the time understand exactly what had happened, but suddenly her assailant bolted. He fled because he heard Pi's friend's car stop behind the house. Her friend had stopped the car, looked up at the porch, and saw all the blood from Pi's cuts. Not knowing how badly her friend might be hurt, 
and knowing Pai might need more help than she could give her, the friend quickly drove off to find a phone and called for help. Remember, it's 1984, so that's the only option. She returned to the house, and the police and ambulance arrived. Pai spent 13 days in the hospital. She had to have very delicate surgery to repair her sliced eyelids. She had other cuts on her face that had to be repaired. She had surgery to relieve pressure on her brain from the swelling that resulted from a 30-minute long rain of blows causing her head trauma. It turned out it was over 30 minutes. It was not the 15 to 30 that she had originally thought. Her hands were badly cut and had to be stitched closed, but fortunately the tendons and muscles had healed correctly. Her right eye was bright red from the bleed caused by the struggle and all the blows to her head. While she healed in the hospital and afterward, Pi Bateman did a lot of soul-searching about what she had experienced. She first wondered whether all she had done, all she had learned, all she had taught for so many years, did none of it matter if she could still be accosted and attacked in her own home? But ultimately, she knew that she only survived because she knew how and had the confidence to fight back. Because she didn't give up. Because she fought for her life over 30 minutes against a man far bigger and stronger. She outwilled him. She had won. That man would have cut her throat outside on the porch if she had not fought back. She probably would have been sexually assaulted once he got her into the house if she had not fought back. Even if she had lived through the first two traumas, he would have killed her inside the house if she had not fought back and prevented him from doing that until her friend showed up. And Pi realized something else. She said, quote, I have a better understanding of what it takes to fight. There were things I never knew I'd do, end quote. Her instincts for self-protection went beyond even what she had trained for and expected. She knew she had given herself literally a fighting chance to make it through this terrifying experience. She was validated in the lessons and the advocacy and the empowerment and the discipline and the sheer strength she had developed in her own athletic endeavors and her involvement in the women's movement. And she knew other women would look at her experience and realize she had been leading them down the correct path. They had it within themselves to fight back too. Frustratingly, Pai's attacker was not found, and he was never found. No one ever paid for this crime against her. And if he had succeeded in killing her, which was clearly his intent, he would very likely have gotten away with it. The loss of this icon to a faceless stranger would have been tragic, but Pai didn't let that happen. So yes, he got away with hurting her, but she's the victor in that contest. He was not able to do what he went there to do, and he ran away with his tail between his legs. Sorry, I really enjoyed it. I didn't want to interrupt you. Sorry. I want you to be able to talk. <laughs> it's like a one-on-one -on -one podcast episode. And what you can say is, I mean, we don't know this for facts, but I mean, firstly, hats off to her. It's like not many people, men or women, could do what she did in that situation. But, well, she prevented all these things happening to her. She could have also prevented this guy ever doing it again. He may have just she would have come away injured as well. So he may have thought, do you know what? I'm not trying that again. This is, I picked a random woman, five foot two, definitely couldn't fight back and look at what she's done to me. So hopefully, hopefully while he's never been caught, yeah, she put the fear of God into him so he would never do it again. She no doubt surprised him with her fierceness and her warrior attitude. She was not going to let him win. So I hope that he did walk away from it and go, that was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. That's not worth it to me. Although. I doubt it, but I hope that's what happened. Although if the first thing he did was to go and try and blind her with her own blood, 
It doesn't sound like this is the first time that he'd done something like this. That's also a good point. That's not a technique that it would have ever occurred to me. Yeah. All right, so let's go on with Pi. Pi still makes her living as a writer and editor. She still advocates for self-defense and turning fear into anger as a means of self-protection. In an interview with the Seattle Times, she said, quote, A good way to look at fear is you take the precautions that make sense, the precautions that don't limit your life. If you feel confident that you could do something, if somebody got through those precautions, you can relax and live your life. And I think that that's what is espoused now as as modern logic. You do have to take precautions. You can't just throw it all to the wind and hope for the best. But you shouldn't also live locked in your house all day and never leave and never do anything that you want to do. You should live your life. Otherwise, the bad guys have affected you in such a way that they have won even if they didn't get to you. Pi never moved out of the house where someone tried to murder her. This woman simply refused to be a victim. He was not kicking her out of her house. The fact that this experience happened to Pi Bateman, a literal pioneer in the world of self-defense for women, is telling of the statistics of assault that face women. The shocking modern statistic is that one in three women around the world have been, or will be, subjected to sexual or physical violence in her lifetime. One in three is devastating. That's crazy. Think of all the women you know and realize that's one out of every three women that you know. Ideally, every woman, and actually every man, should take the steps to learn self-defense mechanisms. But some people organically walk with a confidence that doesn't make them appear to be a victim. They look people in the eye. They don't let others roll over them. They recognize when someone is testing their boundaries and they call them on it, shut it down before it becomes physical. But not everyone is built that way without working on it. So Pi Bateman was revolutionary. She was 24 years old and she knew the bullshit women were facing was wrong. She knew there had to be a better option. She knew she could help women's lives and preparation be better for the terrible event that might one day happen to them. And that's exactly what she did. She saw a problem. And she womaned up and offered another way. I was reading comments about the Feminist Karate Union, which also opened up to children's classes at the end of the 1970s. And every single comment stated that this place, this mindset, this group of people had been life-changing. But what would have happened to that mindset had Pi Bateman not been able to save herself? How many people might have thought, well, if Pi, a black belt, a renegade, a complete badass, couldn't save herself, how could I possibly do it? And I suspect that some of that was in her mind. I think Pi Bateman had such a belief in this empowerment movement for women that she wasn't only fighting that fight for her own life. I think she was fighting for all the women. I think she knew what happened to her would be held up for everyone to see. And she needed them to know it worked. It can work. She did it. Discipline and strength of mind and body saved her, and it might save them one day too. And as I was researching and writing this, I remembered that you actually did a whole episode specifically on violence against women. And I wonder if you have any thoughts or insight into this that I haven't come up with. Well, before I get into details, just as a hopefully just a bit of uh, lightheartedness for you. I know you said you had enough acronyms. I quite like the fact that Pi's acronym is FKU. So basically, <laughs> you can guess what that means. That's quite appropriate. But I think you have to take your hat off to her because let's go up to the point she was attacked. So everything before that point, not only did she do all these things and decided this is what needs to happen and this is how I can help women, 
you've got to remember it's not just a case of especially in that time even nowadays but especially in that time i'm going to do this so i'll get it done she would have had so many different barriers and so many different obstacles because people would have been like this is stupid why are you doing this or right and people wouldn't have been accepted and people wouldn't have been there to help so hats off they would have said the police told us that we should just go along so that they don't hurt us more if this little 24 year old is saying one thing and the police are saying something else exactly exactly right and i would just say that it's sad that we have to live in a society where you have to teach people precautions but even nowadays you see in the news where they go something big or controversial might happen and they go okay we need to make a change but sadly a lot of the time, when it starts being relevant news, nothing ever happens, does it? No, it doesn't. And it goes into obscurity. So you need to know how to how to act. And also that confidence that you mentioned. They always say that an abuser can pick a victim off at like 50 yards because they can identify someone who's going to be compliant and someone who's going to give in to what they want. And it's the same thing. Even if you have to, the old age old saying, fake it till you make it. I think the, the key thing is expect it from anyone. That's the thing. A bad man or a bad person is not someone who walks down the street with like love and hate tattooed on their hand, with like tattoos on their face and whatnot. A bad person can look like me and you. So you have to expect it from everyone. What was that woman in the last episode where she had killed her? New partner, she just looked like an average person, and she was an absolute monster. Oh, yes. She was a middle-aged, grey-haired, or I could be wrong, white woman, and she lived in a small village in England. You'd think, like, this is someone who you'd want to go on and have afternoon tea with, not someone who's going to feed her husband psychedelic drugs and kill him. Mm -hmm. But yes, you're right. Everyone can be a perpetrator. That doesn't mean you have to walk around in fear, but you have to be aware of it. It's about the precautions and confidence. You can't prevent being a victim. That's stupid to say that you can. But yeah, it's, it's all about precautions and confidence, I would say. And knowing that if you're unfortunate enough, and I know people don't like the word unfortunate, but if you're unfortunate enough to be in a situation where a lot of the time it creeps up on you, especially for domestic violence and stuff like that, a lot of people don't realise that in a controlling relationship until they're being controlled, they feel that it's too late. So it's all about knowing that you can always get out. It also for people who you may know, I think that's the main thing. Sometimes people want to bury their head in the sand and say, well, it's terrible what's happened in that relationship, but it's none of my business really. If I, if I get involved, I'll probably make it worse. It's like, no, what could be the difference between you getting involved and not getting involved could save someone's life. Even this story with Dom, her friends, and family would give witness testimony that Thomas was controlling, that they knew Thomas, they was in a violent relationship, but nothing was ever done. You know, I mean, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with them, but sometimes it's easier to think, well, it's not my business. So... Well, I think what happens sometimes is that the concerned friend or the concerned sister or the concerned parent will go to the abuse victim and say... I will help you. Let's get you out of here. And the person will say, it doesn't happen that often. It's going to be okay in the end. He'll stop. It won't get any worse. But then it always gets worse. It's never going to just stop. It's never going to stop. The only way it's going to stop is if you take that person out of your life permanently. 
Yes. I don't mean this as a, a vaccine, but it's an analogy. Once a piece of meat goes bad, it's never going to get good enough to eat again, is it? No. And it's the same with a person. Once a person becomes an abuser, they're not suddenly going to switch off and go, hey, I'll be a nice person again. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I guess I don't have to beat people. I guess I don't have to control people anymore because yes. now I've flipped the switch and I'm all sunshine and happiness now. Yes, indeed. Well, I'm sorry if I was really quiet during that, but <laughs> I was really enthralled. It was like it was a one-on-one podcast episode. I was I was getting sucked into that, but, <laughs> but that's a great story. I've never heard of Pi before. But I'm going to go do a bit of reading later on, and she sounds like an amazing woman. I think she is an amazing woman, and she's been a successful writer and editor. She's got a business where she edits people's manuscripts or theses or whatever and she's done well for herself considering all of the hurdles that she jumped early on when people were telling her that what she was doing was silly and she was like well I don't care I'm doing it anyway because it needs to be done and she did it she really opened up a lot of very healthy stuff for a lot of women who otherwise wouldn't have had access to that so I love pie definitely and not just the you know like cherry pie which is my favorite but Hi, Bateman is a hero. So, all right. I think that we have reached the end of episode 80, Andy. Do you have any final statements or comments or anything you want to throw out there? Just thank you, Beth. Just thank you for, for having me on here. I am truly a, a fan of yours. And Ditto. Just, I know we have listeners who are podcasts and we have listeners who don't. The people who listen to this, listen to this who are not podcasters, Understand that what Beth does, she puts the effort in, the research, the writing, the editing, and the editing is a nightmare. <laughs> Just so we can have like 40 minutes, an hour of quality output. Like, thank you. And thank you on, on their behalf. Well, that's what a thoughtful thing to say. Thank you, Andy. That was just really nice to hear. <laughs> but you do the same. So it's not like I'm riding it on my white horse, saving the day. All of us who podcast have the same tasks that we have to do. There are some who don't edit, but I don't understand how that's possible. No, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Grand them. So if you are not already following Andy, if you're not already following Picture the Scene, tell them where they can find you. You can find us wherever you listen to True Crime B&B. Just search for Picture the Scene podcast and you will find us if you go onto social medias Picture the Scene Podcast, or our handle on most of the social medias is ScenePod. That's S-C-E-N-E-P-O-D. And yeah, you'll find us. I just need to say, for the American listeners out there, we recently had a review where they'd reviewed us maybe a year or so ago, saying, we love this, but we can't quite get his accent. It's too hard, he mumbles too much, and yes, I mumble too much, (laughs) and yes, my accent is not the easiest, but... They recently updated their review saying, now we've got used to his accent, we understand him, and we absolutely love his show. So what I say is, <laughs> give us a chance. And probably start from the latest and work your way backwards. Like our very first episode, absolutely, like the sound is terrible. So Same, same for me. Start at the latest and yeah. if you're brave enough, work your way back until you can't take it anymore. What part of the country is your accent from? Because I can't figure it out. I'm from Yorkshire. Our story is from West Yorkshire, but I'm from South Yorkshire, though. 
Like I've lived in many different counties in the UK and also I've lived in Spain, I've lived in Gibraltar, I've lived in Asia and now I've lived in Ireland for nine years. So I'm a bit of a mongrel, my accent nowadays, but no, it's a Yorkshire accent. I'm a mongrel too. Sometimes I throw out a y'all or a fixin' to. Nothing wrong with that. All right. Well, I really appreciate you being here. I think you brought us a great story today and I appreciate you very much for going to the trouble. I know that guesting on my show is not the same as guesting on other people's shows where you just get to sit there and listen. Nobody gets a free ride. Back in the 70s, the hitchhikers, if you wanted to hitchhike, the driver would say, gas, grass, or ass, nobody gets a free ride. I've never heard of that, but (laughs) fair enough. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Andy. This has been great. And everybody, this is the end of episode 80 at True Crime B&B. Go find Picture the Scene, please. You're going to love them. And if you are enjoying what we're doing here, please give us a rating and a review. And that's the end. Thank you. And I'll see you in a couple more weeks. Great. Thank you. Bye, y'all. Bye. Dawn. Oh, sorry. That's my ring doorbell. Let me turn my sound off on my phone. Forgot about that. Dawn, jingle, jingle, jingle. Oh, well, we always got extra. I remember getting extra chocolate custard and extra jam roly-poly. Sorry. See, it's not a rest stop. Maybe it is a rest stop. Oh, I'm sorry. Jet's come to say hello. Hi, Jet. Probably not. I cannot see him, but I believe he's there. <laughs> Conventional wins. Filling in. I'm missing my per- bit. Can't. I've lost my tongue. I understand. Where was I? Um, Wed ready. I thought that this was September that they got married. Was it October? Did I say September? No, I don't know. I I may have made it up in my head. If I go through and you accidentally said September, I will ask you to send me an October voiceover. <laughs> Do that. Yeah. I'll just I'll, I'll just say now October October the twenty seventh. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, I'll send it to you. But no, you probably said it right, and I just didn't listen because sometimes I'm an airhead. Well, thank you, Andy. I uh oh, um, you froze. Are you are you hearing me? You you froze. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. You froze up also, but I I don't remember what you were saying because I was alarmed that you had frozen. <laughs> I guess we followed a theme without meaning to. Bailey and I used to do that too. You've turned into such a sweet daughter. I am, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm probably quite a lot hairier than her, but yeah. <laughs> Ouch. I about lost my headphones over that one. It's true because I was in the band and I wasn't in any athletics. Not that those two things are related. I was just not athletic. Self-defense skill set. That's a lot of S's. She had spent a decade. Sorry, I don't know what that meant. My sentence is not a sentence at all. Making me think on a Sunday afternoon here. Sorry. And this is to listeners, not to Andy. It wasn't a tale. That's fiction. Did you want to say something? I guess, I guess. uh, Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I'm not going to go there. Let's not go there, Beth.